Faith Science Podcast. My name is Tyler Bublitz, and welcome back to the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany for the week of January 28th, 2024, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this week's podcast, and where has January gone? It's amazing how quickly these months start moving and start going. I know where I'm at. We've been going through some really cold weather, and I think a lot of the United States has been going through some cold weather, and now slowly coming out of that and starting to warm up again, but I think it's this reminder again of at least in the Northern Hemisphere here, we are still in winter. This is that time of season when things are cold. And even as we are getting that promise and continue to see that promise fulfilled with being more and more sunlight day after day after day, it also still can be very, very cold. So I hope everybody's staying warm. I hope you're enjoying the welcome to winter that many of us got over the last couple of weeks. So I have enjoyed that, and I'm looking forward to now getting into some more of the winter activities that I typically would get into. For a while there, it was looking pretty grim. So let's just jump into the question that we had for last week, which was, how prepared are you for the call? And as I even said when I posed this question last week, it's a very broad question. It's a very open-ended question. But I think it's one of those things that we all really do need to work on. I think it's that idea of being able to hear a call and receive a call and then follow through with the call can sometimes be very difficult. I know one of the things that I've said at different times in different places to different people is the idea of get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that God sometimes does call us into is in these different seasons that I have something greater for you, but it means that you're going to probably have to leave behind some things that you really enjoy or some things that you're really comfortable with or things that you don't necessarily want to. And I think that's the difficult thing at times. And in that, though, it allows for growth and it allows us to really understand who God is creating us to be and be able to grow into that. So that's the exciting part of it while also having this thing that's very difficult at the same time. So let's just jump into it here. The Old Testament text this week is out of Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 20. This is coming at a point here where God is rising up the first prophet. And this is where we're getting Moses as a prophet. But God seeing the people needing somebody to kind of be this person to speak on behalf of God for them. And it's been requested. And so that they are able to hear the voice of God and reply to it. So God then stating that, yes, I'm going to rise this person up. I'm going to make sure that they shall speak and be able to hold the people accountable to what the things are that God is desiring for us and that then we aren't led astray, helping to steer the people back. And we have how many of those through the Old Testament and then continuing on with that into the New Testament where we have Jesus and we keep looking back to Jesus as being that prophet. So it's this great little text here to recognize that even God's self here is recognizing that there needs to be change and evolving with that to be able to better serve the people instead of being a flame and leading them ahead that way, but being and a voice, being someone who can then speak through someone else to be able to be on that behalf. The psalm that goes with that is Psalm 111, all 10 verses of it. 
This then is recognizing if we are having this God who is working with us, all the different benefits of what that actually means. It means that we are in close relationship with God and recognizing in that the honor, the majesty, the righteousness, the graciousness, the merciful, and how God continues to provide for us and continues to speak to his people through his people. This aspect of the relationship of who God is and continuing to fulfill that covenant is so important. And I think it allows us in this text to remember how much God loves us, how much God is willing and able to work with us in that, and thus us falling into this place of giving God praise, this praise and affirmation that we get from God at these different moments. The New Testament text or epistle text this week is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. This is a bit of a weird and difficult text, and I will recommend, if you are having issues reading this, look at the message version with this. Basically, what is going on here is you have Paul writing to the people of Corinth, and there is some debate about should people be eating food that has been sacrificed to idols? And the idea being that you have one group who's saying, we recognize that there are no other gods before God. So this is just normal food that other people are seeing as a special ceremony. We're not seeing it that way. So we're just going to eat it. Meanwhile, you have others who are seeing this as a potential stumbling block for those who are newer into the faith or coming from this other faith, and it can be something that's very difficult. And I think it's one of the aspects of this that's really interesting is the idea of not looking at because I don't see this as a problem or being that I am filled with this knowledge and sharing it to other people in a way that's loving, but not in a way that's condemning. And I think especially when we take this text into a modern context, when we are talking about our faith in general, I think there's a lot of things to be learned here from what Paul is stating, that the point of it is that our actions should be more of the love and care for God, not necessarily using just purely our words and saying, this is the way to do it and not this way. And so it's one of these moments that Paul kind of summarizes here at the end where be very careful with this type of thing. And it might be better to not get this free food from these different idol offerings for the brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with this idea and just steering clear of it, that it's much better to be recognizing that, yes, God doesn't necessarily judge our stomachs and how the food got into our stomachs, but God is trying to have this relationship with us. And if they're getting the food in a way that's going to potentially damage that relationship by causing someone to have issues, it's worth being considerate of and really thinking about our actions with that. And I think it plays actually really well into a modern context now for us being considerate and thoughtful, but also thinking about others and thinking about how do we make things in a way more efficient for the whole body of Christ, not just for me, myself, and I. The gospel text this week then is out of Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And like typical Mark, one, we're picking up right where we left off, and two, There is a lot crammed into these eight verses. 
So first, we have Jesus entering the synagogue for the first time as a teacher. Now remember, this is not him as a child. This is him in his early ministry. You've been going through that here. And so he is teaching and surprising the people in the synagogue with his teaching. Then we have someone cry out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One. Jesus then rebukes this person by be silent and come out of him. This is being an interaction between a man with an unclean spirit, as we get in verse 23. The unclean spirit causes him to convulse and cry and with a loud voice comes out of him. Now the people of authority within the synagogue are amazed. And that, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits obey him. And so this idea that this person comes in, this unknown person, and is able to, not necessarily challenge, but being able to enlighten in a new way to get the scribes to think about things in a new and different way. And then allowing also to see how God continues to work through Jesus at this moment and in his amazing people and spreading that news throughout the whole Galilean area, which I think is also a very important part as we'll get into with that. But before we jump into how faith and science come together this week, we have to do our shameless plugs full. Working Preacher, if you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it between the Sermon Brainwaves podcast, the commentaries, or discussions. Since I'm not an ordained minister, I use them on a weekly basis to help prepare me for this podcast, giving me different ideas for this podcast, reading multiple commentaries on this podcast. It's just an amazing resource. And again, as we are talking about 2024 being the year of preparing us for worship, I think this is a great resource to potentially be using to help prepare you for that, whether you are in front of the pews or sitting in the pews. Another great resource that I'd highly recommend is checking out Vanderbilt's Divinity Library and using that Revised Common Lectionary there. I use it on a weekly basis. I really enjoy how they lay out the text week to week, but also having quick links to liturgical art, seeing how different people have interpreted these texts in an artistic manner throughout time and regions of the globe is phenomenal. The prayers, the hymns, the colors. There is a lot of great resources over here to be used, again, to help prepare you for worship. So that it makes it so these texts come alive. You're listening to this podcast already. You might as well be looking at these texts and kind of following along and reading up on your own. So I'd also highly recommend checking out the Vanderbilt's Divinity Library using the Revised Common Lectionary coming from there. Finally, I'd also highly recommend checking out the Green Blades Preaching Roundtable and the Green Blades Rising Publications. These weekly or monthly newsletters are great for reflections on a wide range of topics and hitting more of these ecological echoes, implications, and urgencies. I have written for them. I really enjoy working with them. It's a great place to be checking out. It will be the first link in the reference section. If you're enjoying listening to me talk about how faith and science come together on a weekly basis, I'd highly recommend signing up for at least one of these. I think you'll find this a great resource, again, to be getting you prepared for these weeks and continuing to dive deeper week after week into the Word. I'd highly recommend checking this stuff out. What are we going to get into this week? Well, I think we need to get into penicillin, baby. I think this is a great subject to be kind of be able to talk about with this text. 
And I think we'll also kind of get into a little bit of citizen science because I think there is a tie-in here with that. And when we're looking at these texts and thinking about these texts, I think we need to understand and contemplate how all this works. We need to be able to recognize how our faith comes alive in these different ways and understanding how God is still active and moving in our day-to-day lives. So how this kind of comes up is I think we have to understand that God is willing to utilize teachers in ways that we aren't necessarily expecting. That's one of the things that I kind of see, the change in heart that we get in Deuteronomy, how Paul is even talking to us that, yes, we have to be careful on how we're delivering our messages as people with the word and being careful where we're putting ourselves, but also still being reflective and contemplating that there are people who are having good questions and bringing up good points that are worth getting into. And then we get the gospel text of Jesus early in his ministry being the nobody. In Mark's text here, this is kind of his first public appearance. He is a nobody at this moment. And this idea of Jesus coming in and making this statement and surprising people, I think is so important. And I think when we look back to how penicillin started, I think there is some great correlation. So let's jump into it. The day that gets remembered for penicillin is September 28th, 1928. The amazing thing with this is that there's two folds to this. One, the researcher who discovered this wasn't looking for it. And two, it took us another 10 years to figure out what had actually been discovered. So on September 28, 1928, in London, Alexander Fleming, a Scottish scientist who had been studying the properties of infectious bacteria, comes back after a long vacation and notices that one of his Petri dishes had not been put in the incubator before he left. And when he's looking at it, he's noticing there are mold spores on the Petri dish. And expecting to see bacteria colonies, and in many places there are bacteria colonies except around one mold spore. The area around this mold spore was clear. There was no bacteria growing in it. And as Alexander Fleming decided, this is peculiar, we should look into this more, he realizes that this is a penicillium genus, hence the name penicillin, and that it was excreting a compound that was killing the bacteria. It was creating its own microbial defense system in a way. And the penicillium continues to produce penicillin, and it's using this as a way to thwart off potential bacteria colonies or other things that would be competing for resources. And with this continued release of this, it is allowing to keep this area clear. It is disrupting the synthesis of cell walls in the bacteria, and it's doing this in two different ways. First, we have to understand that a cell wall are these strong, thick, woven mesh of sugars and amino acids that are around the cells of the bacteria. 
And when penicillin is released, it binds to one of the compounds that helps weave this mesh together. And it prevents the cell walls from being rebuilt, which cell walls are constantly in this phase of tear down and rebuild. So it's preventing that from being rebuilt. Simultaneously, it is also releasing a highly reactive molecule that causes additional damage to the cell wall, thus getting to the point where it just kind of breaks the whole cell wall. The bacteria then is just kind of out there. There is nothing holding it together, thus killing it. So this huge thing that then Alexander Fleming kind of starts to figure out, he writes a paper and publishes it in 1929. Nothing happens with this publication until 1938. In that period of time, the president of the United States' son dies from a very common bacterial disease from playing tennis and getting a blister. The inefficiency at that moment of being able to get that into the right hands is substantial. And we'll get back to that. But in 1938, two scientists from Oxford, Howard Florey and Ernest Chain, look at this paper and decide two things. One, they think they can isolate this. And two, that this is very possible. So they then do some additional studies putting enough bacteria into some rats that would have killed the rats, giving them penicillin. And in 1940, they published a paper showing that, yes, it helped keep the rats going. It healed them. It killed off the bacteria. By 1942, it was being implemented in people, which especially knowing the world conflict that we have at that moment, World War II, that this was a huge thing. By 1944, 1 million doses are being produced on an, an annual basis. And by 1945, both Alexander Fleming, Flowery, and Chain all get the Nobel Prize. It's an amazing story, and it's one of the fastest cases to be able to get to the Nobel Prize in medicine, recognizing how dramatic the effect was immediately. And Fleming, in certain ways, kind of even felt this as he got raised to fame the last decade plus of his life because of this discovery. And he has stated on saying, penicillin started as a chance observation. My only merit is I did not neglect the observation. And I think that's an important piece to this whole story, is that Fleming wasn't looking for this. Fleming wasn't trying for this. It happened. And then he publishes it, and recognizing that the right people came along, heard this, figured out how they were going to isolate penicillin, which is something that Fleming wasn't able to do, and being able to then produce it to help many lives, multiple lives. Probably many of us who are listening to this podcast have had some form of penicillin as a drug at some point. And it's something that now, because of superbugs, they are trying to watch how much use of penicillin that we're using. But I digress. The observation of recognizing what was going on was huge. And it's very similar to what we see here in the scribes. The scribes recognizing that one, as Jesus is talking in the temple, noticing that he is coming with a fresh energy, coming with new ideas and speaking with such authority that they are already impressed. And then noticing when something happens in front of them, that this is amazing, that they are not denying it. 
they're embracing it and that it's spreading, that they're encouraging others to be talking about this. But this also shows within the scientific community and even at this point, major holes in how we distribute data. One of the other links that I'll have down in the show notes comes from Andrew Sue, who is a professor at Scripps Research Institute, which is in San Diego, California. And one of the things that he talks about in this TED Talk is trying to figure out how to utilize citizen science to help connect dots and connect papers to be able to connect people together. But Sue brings up a really important point that throughout time and throughout space, There has been multiple times in order for us to be able to advance ideas, we've needed to have people who aren't necessarily quote-unquote experts helping. Some examples, NASA has used this in multiple different ways to look at anything from asteroids to galaxies to taking different pictures of Hubble and being able to help identify and be able to do the initial combing through of material so that the scientists can focus on figuring things out more. If you want to put it that way, that the more the data has been gone through before you're focusing in on different things. Or the Audubon Christmas bird count is something that I've brought up multiple times. One of the biggest civilian science projects in all the world. And the data that is received from there is utilized multiple times over by multiple scientists to look at migratory routes, to look at how different bird populations are doing. So much great research based off the data that is received from that but it's also streamlining it that we are having this basic data collection if you have 500 ornithologists across north america the amount of data that you would get is limited versus if you have thousands and thousands of bird counts a year and being able to have even novices helping with that creates a tremendous amount of data to be able to help utilize, even if it isn't necessarily 100% perfect, but it falls within the confidence intervals of 95%, which most science is utilized off of. It's being able to even do some of the initial funneling to help us understand and be able to get a message across. My guess from the little bit of I understand of the culture of the time, I don't think many of the scribes were necessarily going out into the marketplace and spreading this news about this Jesus teacher. I think it was a lot of other people who were in the temple at the time, hearing the explanation and the emphatic thoughts that the scribes were having it would probably be news in and of itself and making sure that we're sharing that message. Paul even bringing up that the point of what they're talking about with this food in Corinth with going toward idols and making sure that we're thinking about others and really contemplating the things that even today seem kind of mundane, but it's also one of these things too that it's also how we interact and treat each other. It's not necessarily getting to this point of authority. It's working together to be able to have insights together to be able to better understand the message in which God is providing to us. And I think as a global church, this is something that we drastically need to work on. If science is recognizing in order for science to be able to grow and share ideas and connect ideas so we don't have huge gaps like we did with penicillin, that we are trying to start looking at and utilizing citizen science to help do some basic outlines to connect papers together using different language, which was one thing that Andrew Sue brought up. I think we can look and be humble enough within our faith communities to recognize the same thing as needing to happen. It means that we don't necessarily need just pure leadership of people who have gone through the specialized training. Not saying that we don't need them, but we do need them. 
but we also need the people who are just generally in the pews, the laity, as well. It's a very important part and being able to support both and empower both to work together so that we get a better image of who God is because we recognize that God speaks through these prophets and it doesn't necessarily mean they're just the people who we've placed or God has placed in leadership positions in front of us. There are multiple different types of prophets and it's in that we recognize the gifts of God that we have like Psalm 111 reminds us of that God has continued to perform and work these through prophets and through people like us on a day-to-day basis. I think this is where we have to be humble enough to recognize this. Scientists have to recognize and be humble enough that at times their data and their time is better spent focusing on the nitty-gritty, but it needs people to help funnel it so that the nitty-gritty is really valuable. I remember doing that early out of college when I was working with one of the state's departments of natural resources. And one of the things that I literally was doing was combing through thousands of photos looking for turtles. And if I had turtles, I'd have to mark them. If I didn't see turtles, I just kept on clicking. Did I get some cool pictures that didn't mean anything to anybody else? Heck yes. But there was also a lot of just nonsense data that I was scooping through to make it like, here is the pictures that you really need to look at for further research to better understand some things. That's what citizen science is all about. Sometimes citizen science is going to actually provide and give us the insight to where we're needing, but sometimes it's just going through and combing the data so that it makes it easier to actually process the data. Because of the amount of data that's coming in, sometimes we need that initial filter. And I think especially as we are moving into an age where AI is coming in, I think it's the reminder that there is a human element that still needs to be utilized, especially when we're talking about language and connecting different things together. At this point, AI isn't there yet. And I don't know entirely if AI will ever be able to get exactly to the level of humans because Humans are also unique and have so many different thought processes, and that's what makes us so amazing and unique. And it's the beauty of working together, the beauty of being able to see how our minds are working. And it's this moment that we even see with the scribes here, with Jesus, that, wow, he's looking at this so differently than we have before. And so I really hope that as we are moving into this new age of computer technology, that we don't lose completely the human element and the need for the human element and how human thought works. Can it still be supplemented and supported and helped with AI? Sure. But I think there's also the human element that is so important in that. But it also, could AI potentially help surface some of these lesser-known papers that aren't getting the attention or the citizen science stuff that's starting to bubble up something in a small way and maybe throws it into the faces more of people who really need to see it? Potentially. But we're not anywhere near that point at this moment. I think it's that combination of all these moving parts and working together and realizing that we're continuing to be in a changing world, but also being in a place where that change isn't bad. It's a change of recognition and helping us to grow. And when we're growing, it also helps us to better understand who our creator is, to better understand what we're trying to follow and understand more and more about the person in who we worship, the God in which we worship.
So the question I have for you this week is, have you participated in citizen science or are you participating in citizen science? And if so, what? I would really like to hear that. It's an easier question this week after the hard one from last week. I have definitely done my fair share of Audubon Christmas bird counts. I really enjoy them. I'm long overdue for doing another one. I'm hoping 2024 changes that for me. But I think it's so important to recognize that even when we don't necessarily feel qualified, we are qualified, especially within the faith. We look at especially so many of our Old Testament prophets and how many times that they figure out ways to talk about how they are not qualified for what they're doing. And yet they are equipped. And we, as we follow them through, we realize how equipped they are and perfectly equipped for what they are called to do at that time. Even when it's difficult. Take Moses and Aaron. Moses, I don't have good speaking in front of large groups of people. But yet Aaron was there to help in that interpretive process to be able to help get some of those words out. And Moses is looked at as this founding father of the faith in so many ways. I think we have to recognize that as people, we are valuable, whether it is in with the faith community, a science community, or whatever we are doing, there is so much value that we can potentially bring. And it's the gift of the Holy Spirit working within us to be able to bring those insights out. And you never know when those insights are going to be something that is worth spreading and making sure it spreads quickly. And hopefully we continue to work as a body to be able to streamline how we share this information so we don't have gaps like we do with penicillin. We don't have gaps like we have with Jesus' ministry where there's so much doubt. Now granted, this is early on in his ministry and there's still a lot of things where Jesus says that get people to question. But I think there's also this aspect of sharing the information and making sure that it's able to be spread and able to be heard and even talked about, just thinking about it critically, not necessarily just shooting it down as, well, that's so-and-so's thought. The scribes easily could have done this with Jesus early in Jesus' ministry, but instead they embrace it and look what comes from it. And I think that's where, whether it's difficult talks like Paul is getting at and making us think critically on how we impact our communities to recognizing that through these works that God continues to bless his people in so many ways. And God even shows that God is willing to continue to evolve and change, which means we need to continue to evolve and change as well. And I think that's one of the things sometimes that can be scary as we are evolving and changing away from more and more penicillin based on superbugs. We're recognizing that there are other things that we continue to learn and grow and figure out more effective means for taking care of bacterial infections but also realizing that we are continuing to evolve and grow as people in our understandings about the world around us. So, we'll wrap this up as we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science.